Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual Thursday time this week, 10.30 a.m., March 1st. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Hi, Julie. And Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, everybody. So, ladies, I can't quite believe I have to say this, but it's 2018, and we have a new lawsuit filed by state attorneys general challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Sarah, you've been looking at this. What is going on again? A repeat of 2010, a repeat of the last eight years of my life. Um, So this is a kind of surprising lawsuit that comes from, as you mentioned, Julie, 20 state attorneys general. All red states, right? All red states filed in a Texas district court that essentially argues now that Congress has repealed the individual mandate or at least moved the penalty for not carrying insurance down to zero dollars, that decision must lead the rest of the Affordable Care Act to fall. I spent Wednesday yesterday talking to a lot of legal scholars about this. I I haven't found one yet who thought this is a case that's credible. But at the same time, I think a lot of health policy experts have a lot of um, shell shock and a lot of um, PTSD. PTSD, that is the word I'm looking for. from <laughs> Including us. Uh, including us from previous cases. Even the NFIB case that was filed the day after the Affordable Care Act was passed, the King versus Burwell case that were initially written off and then made their way all the way to the Supreme Court within NFIB, for example, this Medicaid challenge that I think was thought to be kind of a nothing burger ended up being a, a huge deal. Um, right, because the Supreme Court found that, the, the, that the Medicaid Court, expansion was not mandatory yes, for this agreed states. with them. And I, I can't remember, maybe you guys do. I don't remember talking to anyone before who had expected that. So I think it, it seems like a pretty weak challenge. But I, I think one of the things it certainly does is that it kind of creates even more of this air of uncertainty about what is the future of Obamacare. You know, People who don't want to implement it, who want to do something like the Idaho situation, they can point to this lawsuit and say, look, we don't know what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty. This law might look totally different in a year. So it's just one more thing that creates this cloud of uncertainty about the future of the Affordable Care Act. Will you, will you try and explain exactly how they say that getting rid of the mandate penalty means that the rest of the law is unconstitutional? So they cite back to the King versus Burwell ruling and this language in there where both the courts and Congress talk about how integral the individual mandate is to the Affordable Care Act. And this language that says, well, if you don't have the mandate, then there's all these things that don't work. So that, was the first, that was the NFIB case, That was right? NFIB, not the, right, not the, yes. King for Burwell was, no, it was, was whether it was a type It was in King, was in too. Oh, it was King in too, because there was like this, you know, insurance yeah. 101 yes. part of the King yeah. ruling, like, oh, this is how insurance markets right. work. So I feel like King yeah. was about legislative intent and the argument that was made is that you have to view this one little provision in the context of this broader legislative scheme, which includes the individual mandate and other things. Right. I think the place where that so, – so the idea is this individual mandate is so crucial and the court has said that and Congress has said that, that now that you get rid of the individual mandate, then 
therefore, these other provisions, they clearly can't work. Um, they make some arguments about severability, that the individual mandate is not severable, which have been... Visit- well, there was no severability. That that <laughs> yeah. was sort of the argument in 2010. That, that was the that, argument that, in right, 2010. Right, that they didn't put... That they, they that, didn't. Basically, the law is not written in a way that usually Congress puts in yeah. a severability clause that says if, if any piece of this is found unconstitutional, the rest of it mm-hmm. can stand. And they didn't do they that. They did not do that. But the appeals courts, they ruled that the rest of the law could stand if the individual mandate fell. The Supreme Court never had to deal with that question because they upheld the individual mandate, so it became moot. But they are also... Well, arg- there was a very enjoyable day of oral arguments at the Supreme Court <laughs> devoted to this extremely technical legal question about whether or not you could remove this one part from the larger legislative scheme without the whole thing falling. We'll never get that day of our lives back. <laughs> I, I, have my, I have my notebook somewhere. <laughs> you might are, need it. I, I went to the press conference uh, on Tuesday with the attorneys general there. I think a half of them were there, a whole bunch of them. And, uh, and you know, sort of this they, as far as they're concerned, this day is coming back because what they were saying is that because Justice, Chief Justice Roberts basically wrote the decision in 2012 from the 2010 lawsuit said that um, because the individual mandate penalty is a tax, therefore it's constitutional. Um, and th- I think their argument is that without – so that, that tax is no longer there. So without the tax – by definition, it must be unconstitutional. Right. But the response, so let's say they do find the individual mandate unconstitutional. It's kind of like, so so what? Well, no, the, they're the, saying that the whole, no, no, the whole yes. rest of the law is unconstitutional. Right. I think right. so. I think these are like the hurdles, though. Like when I talk to experts looking at this case, they say, OK, you know, let's say the court does say, yes, it's unconstitutional at this point. They the people I've talked to, you know, including people who supported previous ACA challenges, think it's quite unlikely that the court is going to say, okay, the individual mandate is unconstitutional and therefore the rest of it falls, when Congress's clear intent this time around was to repeal the individual mandate through tax reform. And nothing else. (laughs) And nothing else. This is, it's hard to take the rhetoric from pre-tax reform Supreme Court cases and say this was the intent of Congress when Congress very clearly showed a different intent with its tax bill last December. I think it also highlights the degree to which our understanding of the individual mandate has changed. So I remember really clearly during that first Supreme Court case and the arguments leading up to it, this view by both critics of the law and advocates that the individual mandate was absolutely essential to the whole legislative scheme. And if if you didn't have the individual mandate, there would be these death spirals of insurance markets and everything would collapse and the Affordable Care Act would not achieve any of its goals and it would be this horrible catastrophe. And I think over time, as the law has come to be and we've seen how it's worked, the individual mandate has come to seem a little bit less important, a little bit less essential. I think that's part of why Congress was able to remove it. And, but I also think it makes this particular legal challenge weaker than it would have been in 2010. So if, if the uh, taxing penalties had been removed right away and we had been having this debate in this sort of theoretical world, I think maybe there could have been a stronger argument. Now, it just seems like we have enough evidence that the law actually does sort of work, not entirely, but largely the way its drafters wanted it to without the individual mandate. But apparently the subsidies are enough right. to, to keep so, the market right. from collapsing, which we, we've talked about a lot right. of times. I mean, I think that the way that there's a couple of things. I mean, I think that 
the people, the, the AGs who brought this case, they're seeing, if we think of like two toys, they're seeing the ACA as like an UNO tower. And if you pull out the little mandate block, the rest of it will fall down. Like a law of severability is the, in UNO, would be the law of I physics. I think it's Jenga. Jenga, right. Jenga, UNO's cards. <laughs> Jenga. My kids have grown. You know, they don't play. <laughs> Julie's right. It's Jenga. Um, I never understood UNO. Um, and I think, you know, the advocates of the law would say it more like a jigsaw puzzle. You can still put the puzzle together even if you're missing a piece. And as Margot said, you know, we're now looking at this. The sub, but, I mean, who's covered? It tends to be the subsidized people. The non-subsidized people are paying the mandate penalty or finding a way of getting exempt. I mean, it'll go away next year, but as of now, because that's the pro- that's the unaffordability problem we referred to. If you're if you're not getting subsidized, if you're not getting subsidized very much, insurance is really really expensive, and the ACA's design compounded by the political changes around it have, it did not do everything it was set out to do in a different political environment. It might look different. By now we might be saying, yeah, that mandate worked if it had been a stronger mandate. So, but I also think there's two things, like as, as Sarah alluded to, the defenders of the law always underestimate the staying power of the critics of the law. I mean, they just do not give up. And it's this law is eight years old, and here we are back to the future, sort of sideways. And, and it's remarkable, I think, that even at this date, given the increased popularity of Obamacare, it's, you know, kind of the way it's become woven into our everyday policy life, the fact that Congress couldn't repeal it, that you still have 20 states that want to sign on to a lawsuit like this. Well, it's, you know, we're in a perpetual, it's part of our politics. I mean, it's, that's part of what, but the other thing is the court is made of, of some very elderly people. And we, you know, I don't want to, you know, predict anyone's demise. The court might look different in a year or two. And this- Well, it's this, already different from what it was it even was, when they did King right, It has changed and it may change further. There could be retirements. There could be, you know, unfortunate other events. Um, it, and this will take, if it even makes it past the few legal hurdles, and we don't know how the lower courts will respond. I don't I don't understand how they have standing um, because, in, you know, in, 20, in 2010, they found people who were going to have to pay the penalties. There was some question about whether it was right, but there were people who were clearly going to, going to be, you know, They filed in Texas. I mean, they they chose where they were to file it. And we don't know if it'll get any. We don't know if it'll get through the first legal hurdle. If it does get to the court, it'll be, you know, a while. Things can look different. They can look different after the November elections. Politically, they can look different in the court just because, you know, it could. Um, I just don't, you know, none of us look at this as like, we don't see a court that has upheld the law twice likely to take this one to pull it down, but none of us, you know, none of us have a perfect record of guessing right on these things. So, you know, we all look at it and see, huh? And I, but, think, I think Sarah's point's a really important one, though, is it just adds another layer of uncertainty, what's already kind an, of an uncertainty. An infinite, like, there are more layers of uncertainty than any of us can count. Yeah. All right. So it seems that the lawsuit from the red state highlights another trend, which is that the kind of health system you have depends more and more on what state you live in, which is ironically exactly the opposite of what the ACA intended. The idea there was to to make the the state laws or to make the rules in various states more uniform. Uh, Margo, you wrote about this this week. I I should mention, as did our podmate, Stephanie, who's I know we had very similar stories uh, that came out on the same day, which which brought a smile to my face. That made me feel like I was on the right track. Yeah, you know, what we're seeing now is as the Trump administration tries to roll back as much of Obamacare as it can through its regulatory power, that we're seeing certain blue states are trying to, like, 
build it back up, you know, trying to sort of patch the holes that are do being their own dug. And, then do their, and, and I think some of it is interesting. Some of it is just trying to literally patch holes. So there are states, for example, that want to ban short-term health insurance policies, which were recently liberalized under a new regulation that's proposed by the Trump administration. So there are some states that are just going to say, like, nope, you can't sell it in our state uh, and try to preserve the status quo. I think there are also some things that states are doing that are more creative and interesting. And the individual mandate is one place where we're seeing states look at replacing the individual mandate, but maybe not doing it exactly the same way as the federal government had done in the ACA. And I would say the version of this that has the best shot of becoming law and also is the most creative is one in Maryland, uh, which I know we've talked about on the podcast before, and Sarah knows more of the details than I do. But what Maryland is trying to do is essentially say, if you don't have insurance, you're going to have to pay this penalty to the state. But if you want, you can put that money towards buying insurance. And in many cases, they believe people actually will be able to get insurance once they've paid that penalty amount that it'll be for free for them. And so they're calling it a down payment. And they think that this has a lot of advantages. One argument that they make in favor of it is that more people will get coverage. That will help the risk pool. It will advance the state's goal of improving insurance coverage. But I think they also think that it is a less politically toxic way to package the mandate because it feels less punitive. It's not just we're taking this money away from you as punishment for not doing this thing, but we're allowing you, oops, you didn't get insurance. That's okay. We will help you get insurance insurance now uh, with this payment that you've made to the state. There was something, I can't remember whether it was in your story or in Stephanie's story, but somebody pointed out that insurance companies are going to have to decide what they're going to do for next year in the, the, the fairly near future, in the next couple of months. And the idea of states who want to do things actually passing these laws and standing up programs in time for 2019 is a really big lift. Yeah. I mean, this is a problem with you know almost all of these kinds of uh, schemes that rely on states to pick up the slack. So I wrote about this a little bit in the context of the Graham-Cassidy bill, you know, a couple of months ago now, that would basically give states these block grants and say, design your own healthcare system with this money. Uh, whether or not you think the way that those block grants are designed uh, is good, I do think that there are legitimate questions about how easily and quickly states can build these systems. And we're seeing a similar thing happening now where, you know, a lot of state legislatures meet for relatively short periods of time. So Maryland, for example, is only meeting until April. They have like this tiny little window in which to uh, write and devise and pass this bill, then just like... Uh, with a with, Republican governor. Yeah. <laughs> and then just like with federal law, you know, passing the law is not the end of the process. You have to write regulations. You have to give guidance to the various people who are going to comply with the law about exactly how you're going to do it. Uh, so the state has to write regulations. Then they have to, the insurance companies have to uh, change their plans. They have to decide on the basis of these rules. We have to build these reporting systems and we have to change our uh, risk formulas and our prices for our products. And, you know, as we know, uh, insurers have to start submitting their prices for insurance for next year uh, as, as soon as May in many states. So this is a relatively abbreviated time frame for big policy change. And uh, one person I spoke with, uh, Jason Levitas, who was a former Treasury official in the Obama administration, actually is advising states that if they want to build an individual mandate, that what they should do is use almost all of the exact same language from the federal law, not because he thinks it's the perfect policy solution, but because he thinks it's going to be the easiest thing to do quickly and that states could then build more complexity on top of it in the future. And I think one other thing in the other side of this is you also see red states yeah. trying to Thank carve you. out <laughs> their own future. So if you're an insurance company, so you're looking at Maryland might have an individual mandate, then you're looking at like Iowa that's thinking of exempting its Farm Bureau plans from... Um, 
from a lot of Obamacare regulations. It seems to be following the example of Tennessee that's been doing this for a little while. You have Idaho and their freedom plan situation. Um, which we've talked about. Which a bunch. we've yeah. talked about and don't need to get into in depth again. But you see this real move in red states to deregulate Obamacare, to try and get people out of these, you know, to give people other options that don't necessarily have the protections for pre-existing conditions that might have lifetime limits or fewer benefits. So it's, um, it's I, I know insurance companies are not popular, but I, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who have to set Obamacare rates at insurance companies next year to try and do so as you see a real polarization around how states are managing Although the Affordable Care Act. I feel a little bit less bad for them than I would have a year ago because, you know, I feel like last year when there was this big debate about whether the cost-sharing reduction payments were going to be paid for 2018, uh, the insurance companies were saying all the same things. Oh, it's going to be so hard. We need to submit our rates in May. We need to make these decisions way in advance. It takes months to develop our rates. And I don't mean to, to uh, dismiss those concerns, which I think are legitimate. But what we saw is that, you know, President Trump uh, removed the cost sharing reduction payments in one day. And within like two days of that, <laughs> the states that had not reshuffled their rates like quickly did it. And so I do think that the insurers are perhaps like slightly more nimble than they would like us to believe. <laughs> Still, it, it, is, it is. There's one other thing I want to say about the state variation, and this is something that I think Stephanie's story really highlighted quite well, is even setting aside the regulation of the marketplaces for people who buy their own insurance or who buy insurance for a small business. There also are, I think, quite large changes that are coming to Medicaid depending on what state you live in. So we already have this big divergence where many states, because of the Supreme Court decision in 2012 that we just talked about, um, many states did not expand their Medicaid programs. And so what that means is that uh, adults without children who are poor didn't get the benefit of Medicaid coverage and are you know tend to be uninsured in those states. So that's a really big difference between states that expanded and didn't. But we're also seeing now this real proliferation of innovative Medicaid waivers that look as though they're going to get approved. Uh, we've talked before about work requirements that were approved in both Kentucky and Indiana. There are some proposals to put limits on the amount of time people can stay in Medicaid. And there are also you know several proposals to add kind of administrative complexity, premiums, cost sharing, other things that are relatively unusual in the Medicaid program. But these are not things that every state is asking for. You know, it tends to be more conservative states that want them. And so I think even putting aside the individual mandate, the experience of being someone who is eligible for Medicaid is also going to vary quite a bit based on what state you live in. And that is also going to end up in the courts. That process has already started. So, I mean, we've we've reached the point where, you know, my, one of my, I think many of our listeners know um, Jen Habercorn, one of our reporters who's been covering healthcare for a long time and who's incredibly well organized. And so it is time for another lawsuit spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I hope you'll share it with us. <laughs> All right. Well, we spent most of 2017 talking about Republican disarray on health care. Um, I want to talk about the Democrats for a bit. As we have discussed previously, there is growing public sentiment for a Medicare for all single payer plan. Just about every Senate Democrat who's even flirting with thinking about running for president in 2020 has signed on to Senator Bernie Sanders' single payer plan. But a lot of Democrats still think that getting there would be entirely too 
disruptive, which we've also talked about. And expensive. And expensive. So last week, the Center for American Progress, which for better or worse represents what I call the Obama-Hillary Clinton wing of the party, uh, came out with a plan they call Medicare Extra for All, which is basically a public-private Medicare for All hybrid. And I realize that's internally contradictory, but that's where we are. It's uh, different from the way Medicare is <laughs> right now. Good point. Yeah. Which So are Democrats going to be able to come together on this, or are we looking at the same kind of you know intra-party civil war we're seeing on the Republican side? I think there's, I mean, there's the, the, the policy details of this, which are, that's one conversation. Um, it, it basically, in really short, it, it lets the employer plans persist for at least some indeterminate To minimize future. the disruption. Right. So it's sort of, a, if you like it, well, you, you can keep it. It's, it's also, remember that employer option, um, it's one of the reasons that the Clinton plan, the Bill Clinton plan fell apart in, in the 90s was there was too much disruption to the Employed people who had employer-sponsored which is still the majority of right. the country. <laughs> so it, it it sort of keeps that, but I mean, without getting into the policy details, because it's all sort of still fairly there. There's some all the details have not been spelled out. I mean, politically, it does seem to be an attempt to have the best of both worlds in that it is moving toward a single single parish scenario, while also acknowledging that you don't want to force everybody out of um, the private insurance, if they're happy with it, um, it is a recognition that uh, it is a move away from the let's fix the ACA. Um, partly, I believe that's partly a political imperative that you know people just look at the ACA as having all these problems. Um, Although there is a there's a Kaiser poll out this morning they, that shows the ACA is the most it, popular it's, it's ever, ever been. been, but it's still half the country, right? Yeah, and um, and it does have problems, and the. Um, politically, the split in the party, well, we're going to fix this thing that keeps getting more broken, even if you can say the Republicans are causing the brokenness, versus we are going to embrace this concept of getting everybody covered through a Medicare-like system that people really like. I mean, it's it's an attempt to sort of, I wouldn't say split the difference, but sort of, you know, some kind of... Actually, I think of it as sort of a safe harbor for people who, in their heart of hearts, would like single payer, but are terrified that about how you would actually get there. But it is an attempt to get there incrementally. It's, you know, it, it, it's, yeah. it's trying to hit. A, I, I'm not sure if it's a middle ground, but it's sort of trying to hit a lot of political well, buttons also, at once. I also think it's acknowledging something that Bernie Sanders and some of the more vocal advocates for single payer systems often miss, which is. The choices not choices available for universal coverage are not like the American system or single payer. That if you look around the world, there are lots of different ways that countries do this, and many of them do it with multiple payers. Not all of them do it with just one government payer. And you know, to your question, Julie, about whether the Democrats are going to be in disarray on health care, I, I like, think they... do we? Do, I mean, we've all said we're not perfect prognosticators, <laughs> but can we raise our hands? Yeah, right? <laughs> definitely. What, what, what I was going to say is, I think it's a little bit too soon to tell, and I actually think that the emergence of this plan it's makes sort of, me right. a, a little bit more uncertain. I think if you'd asked me a few months ago, I'd say, "Oh, this seems like a big problem. There's going to be this big schism within the party." But I think what we're seeing now is that people in the center left are kind of entering the conversation. There are vo- multiple proposals. There are being seriously debated. I think they're being seriously thought about. And it's not clear to me exactly where the consensus will end up and and how much consensus there will be within the party. But, you know, we have a we have a number of years before Democrats can credibly uh, plan on making major changes to the health care system. And so I, I think it's just something to watch, you know, as this debate evolves, 
where do they end up? Do they end up somewhere like this, which is a sort of complex multi-payer system? Do they end up something more like the Sanders plan, which is a kind of Canadian style single payer system? And also there's a lot of other stuff in this Center for American Progress uh, proposal besides just the Medicare expansion that I think is interesting. and um, Disability, changing how people Yeah, they make changes to yeah. disability system. They also um, make changes. They institute price controls for the whole healthcare mm-hmm. system. So uh, even though private insurance would continue to exist, the private insurers would have the benefit or perhaps the limitation of paying doctors and hospitals the same prices that Medicare pays. Uh, you know that's that would be a big change, and that's I think <laughs> that's that's change. worthy of uh, of its own uh, debate. Yes. I mean, I think one of the issues in the Democratic Party so mu- it's not so much are people for or against single payer as an aspirational idea. It's like how much you know the people who say it's not realistic or it's practically too expensive or they don't know how to get there is too disruptive or it's too politically risky. It's not that they hate the idea of single payer. It's that they think it's too pra- too expensive, too risky, too blah blah blah. Everything I just said. And a lot of them have scars from previous right. attempts. Right. They went, you know, it's a very battle scar. So, I mean, I think in this, this is a, an attempt to sort of, you know, not exactly a big tent, but sort of that, you know, sort of that way. But from the outside, if you're a Republican, you're still going to say government takeover, regulate, you know. It's but they're going to they're gonna say that about almost anything, anything from any, the left. Right. Anything right. to the left of the ACA presumably right. is going to be subject to at least the same attacks that the ACA received. I mean, I actually yeah. read, I, I read the CAP report as more of a sign of unity than disarray, which well, maybe will not be the case in the future. But as you you know, Julie mentioned that CAP is typically like the Clinton-Obama wing of the Democrat Party, and they're influential. You know, they are a think tank that people listen to, and I think it's pretty notable that they are stepping towards the Sanders vision of healthcare, not getting all the way there, but certainly making a big leap in their direction. And I think they have been, you know, the folks I've talked to and Topher Spiro, who worked on this report, will tell anyone that they didn't feel like it was the right time to do this during the ACA debate. They had to defend it. But now that that has, you know, has slowed down for a little bit, (laughs) they, um, you know, made a strategic decision. They look at all this stuff that we were just talking about, the things happening in Idaho, the work requirements, and they kind of wonder, like, is the ACA actually going to work or did we build a law that is just too easy to be sabotaged? So I actually see... I, I don't think it's like singing kumbaya and like the Democrats have their plan yet. But I think it is a step towards unity versus disarray, having a second competing universal coverage plan um, that it, that it really opens up a robust debate. But that, that, that that's actually shows the Democrats coming together. In a sort it, of way. it could. It could. It, all, it also could be. I mean, we know Democrats. I mean, it could be <laughs> it's broad enough and it has enough components that a more conservative Democrat can say, see, the private insurance system is still going to be there. You can still keep your insurance and that the more progressives can say, see, you know, there's Medicare, that option is there for everybody. It could be the scenario that. But, you know, we also know that they could the yeah. Democrats. I also think that a lot of people who are <laughs> but I get, advocates yeah, it, for it single payer. It did move to a the lot left. of people who are advocates for single payer. They they really believe in single payer. You know, there's I think the sort of the cap part of the party is like looking for a compromise. And I do think that a lot of the ambitious Democrats, Julie, that you mentioned, who are considering running for president, I, th- many of them even said in their statements endorsing the Sanders proposal that it was aspirational. You know, I mean, they sort of they're saying they want to make a gesture in the direction of we want a system that's more fair, that's more universal, that's more affordable, that's more to the left of the current system and that perhaps is less vulnerable to sabotage. But they, I don't think they necessarily meant it literally. 
I do think that there are a lot of people in the Democratic There's a lot base of people who hope they who, mean it literally. Who really do mean it literally. Yes. And right. so I think that that is going to be a challenge now that we have, you know, at least consensus that we're moving left and a relatively mainstream proposal to kind of go all the way to a Canadian-style single-payer system. Will those people be able to get together and feel comfortable with one proposal? And I don't know. Poli- you know, we're we're like... We have two major sort of social changes happening in a pretty brief period of time, and we don't know how long they're going to last or what form they're going to take. But, I mean, both the Me Too uh, issue and how it's affecting women and their allies and, and the guns, I mean, and what it's doing for kids and their parents. Um, they're, they're two things that we were not talking about what, two, three months ago? I mean, when was the one? I forgot now. How Last many fall. months was it that? So, you know, it was a few four months. Four or five months ago. But the, the you know, how that energy and mobilization is going to spill into issues such as single payer, I don't think we know yet. I think we're at a really fascinating moment um, of, you know, it's it, also- it, it, but it, I don't know that that issue, I don't, I don't know whether it takes energy away from healthcare and we're going to be talking about other things and being mobilized and different uh, political emotional buttons, or if that is going to wind its way toward some of the more traditional left of the Democratic Party wings, you know, kind of progressive issues. I don't know yet. Yeah. And I think to Joanne's point, the Democrats may have to have a platform on health care, but that doesn't mean that health care is going to be their number one policy priority in the way that it was, or maybe their number two policy priority in the way that it was in the early years of the Obama administration. So you could imagine a scenario where Democrats control the Congress and the White House in 2020, which I'm not predicting that, but you could imagine that. Uh, and they might have a plan for health care, but that might not be the first thing that they push for or the second thing or the third thing. And it might never happen. It will continue to be something that they wish to move towards or that they'll get to eventually. But there may be other policy areas that are more pressing or that they feel are more politically advantageous to focus on. And or, they might be less pressing of an issue when they're in yeah. charge and they're administering the law and they can run it how they want to run it. Right. And the other, you know, speaking of deja vu 2.0, it's, you know, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray are talking again. And, and you know, could they get some kind of stabilization that would, you know, buy the market some time and make things a little better? You know, I don't I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's super likely. But, you know, there's still this other there are these sort of there's another track of trying to stabilize and get the ACA back toward on a path where if Democrats regain power, they could, in fact, you know, rebuild it and and, and try to make that into a platform. I think there are people who... I mean, if you look at polls, people say, yeah, I want to fix it. And I also think there are enough people who are just watching the lack of competition and the uh, and the, the non-subsidized premiums, you know, who may be skeptical about the ACA at this point. I mean, we don't know if they would, if the Democrats came in and said, OK, we're going to do this for you, whether they would, you know, embrace that. We don't know that either. All right. Well, so we have short term stuff and long term stuff. I think we're going to stop now and we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. And if you miss it, we will post the links to these stories at uh, Kaiser Health News, KHN.org. Who wants to go first this week, Sarah? Yeah, so the story I brought is called Passengers Who Call Uber Instead of an Ambulance Ride Put Drivers at Risk. Um, It's from Carolyn O'Donovan at BuzzFeed News. And this is an issue I'd never thought about, but seems so obvious once I read this story. It was about an increasing number of people relying on ride shares like Uber and Lyft to get to the hospital instead of, you know, calling an ambulance. And I think a lot of that is likely due to the very expensive price of taking an ambulance. I'm sure all of us as reporters have heard from readers who have had some very, very high ambulance bills. 
But it's a pretty big legal liability for these drivers、um, to have someone with a medical emergency in their car. And one of the things that jumped out at me was they cited some recent research that estimated when Uber X enters、um, a metropolitan area, the volume of ambulance rides goes down seven percent. So it seems like there's something. Going on there, and this raised a healthcare issue that once I read the story, I was like, "Of course," but I had never thought of before. <laughs> well, I I just、um, I did a big project when I was in New Hampshire as a reporter at the Concord Monitor about ambulance service. And New Hampshire is this weird state where like every small town has to have its own ambulance, and so there's like every kind of ambulance service you can imagine. Some of them are good, and some of them are bad, and some of them are paid, and some of them are volunteer. And I spent basically a year really looking at EMS services and how do you optimize them and who's doing it well and what are the measures. That policymakers in these communities should care about, and one of the things that I learned is that the vast, vast majority of people who take an ambulance really do just need a taxi cab. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are so- certain kinds of life-threatening emergencies where you need someone with some medical training on the scene to stabilize you immediately, or you're going to have a much worse outcome. But most people, you know, you fall and break your arm, you have an asthma attack. I mean, there are there are a lot of things where basically you just need to get to the hospital, and then a doctor will take care of you, and you will get treated, and you will get better. And so. Yeah, like maybe it's some liability for Uber, but I don't know. Like it seems like, given how costly ambulance rides are, like maybe this is not a bad、yes. development. Although, that there the, are these alternatives the, for the, people. The example in, in the BuzzFeed story is somebody who got in an Uber pool. <laughs> <laughs> Driver is has to decide. I mean, he's supposed to take the first guy first, but this、he、other guy apparently passing out. The, the, the research on EMS services is really interesting and really、yeah. counterintuitive. So it turns out actually that having a paramedic、uh, come to your medical emergency instead of just like the lowest level certified EMT actually increases your risk of having all kinds of bad things happen to you. <laughs> <But we can laughs> just think of what our phones are to look like. Instead of now we have black car Uber and regular Uber and Uber Pool and Uber Express Pool, and then we're gonna have Uber Defibrillator Pool, right? <laughs> Uh, I wanted to talk about another BuzzFeed article from Stephanie Lee, who has been doing really great reporting on this、uh, team of researchers at Cornell, led by a professor named Brian Wansink, who study sort of behavior around food. And what she found is that he and his co-authors, and I, but I think particularly him, have been systematically presenting research that is weak, flawed, or fraudulent. So、um, I think he's had six papers now that have been retracted from journals, and a number more where very serious questions have been raised about them. And The papers that have been retracted have been retracted because he, for example, said that a study applied to eight-year-olds in an elementary school, but actually it applied to preschoolers in a daycare.、Um, there also, I think, are some、uh, quite valid or persuasive criticisms that the statistics, the summary statistics, in some of his most famous published papers are not consistent with actual results that you could、uh, come up with on your own. These are studies that we've all read about because everybody's written. Yes, about I want. I want to. I mean, I, I want to get there. Yeah. <laughs> I've written I've written about his work several times and taken it very seriously. And sorry, I just want to say one last thing. This this latest article lays out a new criticism, which is、uh, this reporter, in a quite enterprising fashion, foiled the emails of one of his co-authors who works for a public university and therefore、uh, whose emails are subject to public information requests, and saw that they were routinely trying to take every little piece of data that they were collecting on a particular study and just see if they could find something that. 
that reached a level of statistical significance and then published that, which is really the opposite of how social science research is supposed to work. What you're supposed to do is have a hypothesis, design an experiment, test that hypothesis, and then if you get a statistically significant result, publish that result. You're not supposed to just gather a bunch of information and then like put it through a statistical machine and then find the one thing that matches. Uh, it appears that he was he and his colleagues were doing this on a routine basis, and that, that was their strategy, and that their goal was to, uh, in the words of one of these emails, uh, find results that would go virally big time. So basically, we really don't know what we should or shouldn't be eating. But yeah, so well, I think that's not true. So what I just want to talk a little bit about Wansink's research and why I think it has been so compelling to those of us who write about healthcare is that... His focus is not on, like, how do you gain or lose weight based on the mix of carbohydrates and fats and proteins that you eat or, you know, um, how much you exercise or the kinds of things that a lot of us focus on uh, when we're talking about obesity. What, what he studied instead is how does the environment affect what and how much we eat? So some of his more famous studies show that if you uh, – feed people a larger container, they will eat more food out of that container, whether it's a box of cereal or a plate on their table or a soup bowl. Um, Anyway, I just think that these are really compelling ideas in part because it feels so much easier to control your environment than it is to control your appetite or the food that's available to you. And I do wonder, I feel like some of his findings probably are legitimate, but now it's just almost impossible to really know. And someone's going to have to replicate all of these studies to figure out uh, which are the ones that are real. Joanne? Um, Well, since... uh as a mother of a 17-year-old, it occurred to me recently that there are no kids in American schools, right? Maybe a few stray high school seniors with fall birthdays, but there's basically no kids in American schools right now who were not born who, before Columbine. So the, this generation has grown up with school shootings. And as the mother of a 17-year-old, I can tell you <laughs> um, it's hard on both parents and kids. And The Atlantic has a Jim ha- uh, James Hamlin, The Atlantic has um, a piece called What Are Active Shooter Drills Doing to Kids? And I had never thought about this. Um, these drills were, they're as young as two and four-year-olds in preschools, you know, hiding in closets, being told to pretend, you know, they, they can't make a noise or someone's going to kill them. I mean, it's apparently it's really traumatic. And the entire generation of kids has grown up with these drills and um, we're not even sure if they work, if they really save lives or how much they save lives or what age they save lives. So it's a, it was a provocative and very upsetting piece. Uh, well, mine is a little bit more hopeful <laughs> to end on. It's from my uh, KHN California colleague, Anna Gorman, who writes about a promising new program at the Los Angeles County Jail to actually provide health care to inmates there. This is not a prison. This is the jail. So most people are only there briefly. So it's a really big lift to make changes. Um, but they're doing some pretty impressive work after years of taking a lot of heat about not doing such impressive work. So that is it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate if you left a review, that will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sarah Cliff. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kinnon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>